kids need all of the love and the role models and not being able to be with them now even breaks my heart. And so the highlight is, of course, them. The low light is being a teacher is never respected enough. Education is never funded enough, especially in underserved communities. Mm -hmm. And so you really have every force working against you. But if it's something that you care about, that stuff doesn't matter. Welcome to the How Do You Do That podcast, or in today's case, How'd She Do That? I'm your host, John Pham, and today I have the joy of sharing with you Liz Hadley's journey from Berry Hill, Oklahoma, all the way to Capitol Hill. Liz is one of the most kind, most thoughtful, and most dedicated people I know. I'm grateful that she made the time to join me during her short trip to Austin to share her story. During this Thanksgiving season, I hope her story will inspire you to reflect on and appreciate the value of your unique experiences. We're live. Liz, so good to have you in Austin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I know you're the first episode, and so I'm really excited to dig into your story, dig into your journey, and share with different people your experiences. Yeah, I hope I have something to give. Yeah. <laughs> so you're sort of on Thanksgiving break, right? Yeah, I'm trying to get there. <laughs> trying to get there. And you're living in D.C. right now. Mm-hmm. And you're in your, is it your third year of law school? Last year, yeah. The last year. year. So mm-hmm. how have the first couple of years at Georgetown been for you? Uh, the f- first two and a half years so far have been really challenging. I'm not going to be dishonest, but... I think as with anything challenging, you grow from it. And so it has been a huge time of growth. And now that I am coming up on my last semester, I have been doing a lot of reflecting. And I think it has been an overall positive experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But grad school is hard. So I'm just trying to get to the end. And I'm sure there will be a lot of things when I'm done and I graduated that I will look back and be like, oh, I learned that and I didn't even know in the moment that I was learning it. So overall positive experience. Positive experience. Okay. So let's rewind. So you're originally from Berry Hill. Yes. I'm from a very small town in rural Oklahoma outside of Tulsa that has a pre-K through 12th grade grade system. And I started there in third grade and went all the way through my senior year. And that was kind of everything that I knew until I was 18. Wow. Okay. So how big was your cohort class? And then what was it like going from that and going to OU? Yeah. So I graduated with around 80 people in my graduating class. So very tight knit, especially having known everyone, you know, since I was seven or eight years old, growing up in a community where Parents are very involved. You know everyone's parents and their grandparents. Everyone knows your parents and your siblings. So a very tight-knit community, which I actually really loved. Um, I felt a lot of support, and it was really good for me at that point in my life. And then transitioning to the University of Oklahoma, where I went with not knowing hardly anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Not very many people from my school went there. 
just some, you know, acquaintances that I had met along the way through high school actually ended up at OU with me. So that was a challenging transition. Always been interested in exploring new things and learning new things. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoyed it. But to say, you know, that it was easy would not be truthful. Yeah, absolutely. So was it hard to build community? Because it was like you had such a tight knit community at Berry Hill and then coming and you're in a big pool of people now, like much bigger than 80 people. What was that? What was that like? Yeah, it was it was difficult to build community at first, especially the people that I knew coming into OU. Um, you know, I knew that those girls would be interested in doing other things on campus. And so that proved to be true. And we kind of went our separate ways and got involved in different organizations. So I think the best thing I could do or the only thing I really knew to do to find community was to throw myself into organizations that I thought would be interesting or that I thought would provide the type of people that I wanted to be around. And so that was how I initially started building community at OU was finding passion projects essentially mm-hmm. and kind of stepping into any room I could find that would have me and linking up with people there, which is how I met you. Yeah, you were so active. I feel like we were involved with so many different things from CAC to mm-hmm. camp to yeah. campaigning and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. Yeah. That was us just trying to find our own passions and things that we wanted to do. I feel like you and I took the same approach of try everything and hopefully something sticks and they did. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's even now I feel like I'm still like trying a bunch of different things, trying to figure out like what I really love and what I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear more about what did you major in? Did you always think you were going to go to law school? Was that something that developed over time or can you share a little bit more about that? I definitely didn't ever think I would go to law school. Um, you know, from a very small town and was a first generation college student. So even going to the state school and getting a degree at all was not something that was necessarily expected mm-hmm. of me and from me. So to that degree I didn't always want to go to law school, but my experiences at OU are definitely what brought me to that. I had a interest in constitutional studies and had taken some classes in the constitutional studies program at OU that I just found interesting. And so to that extent, by the time I graduated, I had been thinking about law school because so many people from that program do go to law school. So it was on my radar. But when I graduated, I was not enrolling in law school. I wasn't taking the LSAT or having any concrete plans to even go to law school. You went to Teach for America, I guess. Was that sort of a pretty clear path for you or was it? No. So it actually started with High School Leadership Conference, which is an organization at um, OU that I had been involved in my freshman year and and a few years after that. And it was working with high school students. And that age group was just something that I was drawn to. I love that time in a child's life I thought that time in my life was so formative I was really involved in leadership Mm -hmm. stuff from the time that I was 15 all the way through graduation and so I've always found that age and adolescence to be very fascinating and also really important a really important time in a child's life and development and so getting involved in that organization I think 
I didn't know at the time that it drew me to kids that age, but that kind of sparked something in me to be working with students that age. And then after that, I was involved in Camp Crimson working with incoming freshmen, and so a relatively similar age group. And so throughout these several experiences, I kind of always found myself drawn to various programs that were dealing with kids, but usually kids that were, you know, middle school and high school age, not necessarily younger children. And so when I was finishing with OU, I didn't know what I was going to do with my degree, as most people graduating from college probably can relate to. Mm -hmm. I had stumbled across a Teach for America ad, and it was all about, you know, equitable education and... All I knew about Teach for America was they sent people into schools that are traditionally underserved or understaffed, and you teach children in a variety of different subject matter areas, and that's supposed to help in some way. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about it and thought, you know, education equity is something that I think is important. I went to a public school and made it to a state school, but not everyone that I went to high school with even went to college. Mm -hmm. And so through my life experiences, without even realizing it, education and education equity was something I cared about. And it wasn't until I was really confronted with the Teach for America ads that I realized that it was something that I cared about and that I wanted to be a part of. And through my high school experience and the various organizations that I worked with on campus, working with kids around this age, that I realized that maybe going and being a teacher, maybe that's the thing I'm supposed to do with my life. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm supposed to be in the classroom. Maybe I'm supposed to be working with children, working on educational equity, and I didn't have anything better to do with my degree (laughs) or my time. And so I figured, you know, why not apply Teach for America, and they, I don't know why, but they accepted me. Yeah, okay, so constitutional studies, mm-hmm. how prepared did you feel to start teaching students? I guess this, I like a lot of people study education for four years, and they get a whole degree in this, and so was there anything from your degree that you felt helped you, and then I guess what does, what did Teach America do to help equip you and empower you to be able to take on that challenge? So I don't think anyone is ready to enter the classroom (laughs) after having entered the classroom. Uh Um, And I'm sure having a degree, an education degree, would have maybe equipped me more. But I think if you ask any first-year teacher, they Mm -hmm. will tell you it was just pure insanity all (laughs) the time. The things at OU, I think, that actually helped me the most in the classroom were the things that I learned from campus organizations and outside activities, not necessarily any classes that I took or any particular major that I could have chosen. I think working with children, especially the age that I did, which was middle school, sixth through eighth grade, which everyone always finds to be such an interesting choice um, and age group. But I think Learning how to work with people and work with different kinds of people is going to be a skill that's really transferable across anything you do, and working in the classroom was no different. And so it was really my experience 
working with people, working in teams, working on projects with groups and learning about group dynamics and personality styles and how to lead a group of people regardless of age or regardless of what the eventual goal was. Those were the skills that actually really transferred into the classroom that helped me become eventually what I think is a fairly decent educator after, you know, several months of trial and error. Yeah. I think to your point, like the campus involvement and plugging in and trying to find that passion, like you developed a lot of unique other skills, like soft skills, collaborative skills, leadership skills. And those are maybe a little less tangible, but you can really use them in a lot of different settings. And it sounds like that was something you were able to leverage for the Teach America role. Yeah. And I think too, we're all looking for the thing that we want to devote our time to or, you know, what's my biggest life passion. And I, I tried searching for that in these various campus organizations from leadership organizations to charity organizations to religious organizations. And I think what I took from all of those were these, you know, softer skills that, did help me and and continue to help me in every area of my life, but I didn't come across anything in particular that I was like, oh, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I want to spend my life doing. So that's why when I graduated, I still didn't know, what am I going to do with this degree? What am I going to do with the 40, 50 years that I have in the workforce? And I was hoping that education would be that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the skills that you get, from just trying to figure out what you want to do, that's just as valuable as actually knowing that, hey, this is the thing for me. And so while spending all of that time at OU didn't lead me to my life's work, my life's passion, every step was a building block that eventually led to the point where I can say, yeah, I think I think that's the thing I really want to do. Yeah. Okay. So before we get there, mm-hmm. and I want to get there, I want to hear more about Teach for America. I know that there's a lot of people that are considering doing that, maybe going down that journey. Mm-hmm. Could you share a little bit like about what to expect? And then if you have any highlights and lowlights that you'd want to share as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Teach for America can be a very divisive talk- topic for people to talk about. Mm-hmm. Some people love it and think it's the most incredible organization. Some people hate it and think the work that they're doing is useless and not as progressive as they paint it to be. And I tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I didn't go in to Teach for America expecting that I was going to walk into a classroom of 30 students who had no idea who I was, working in a community that I had never even been to and expect to just be their Mary Poppins and save the day. And then they all go to college and Mm -hmm. we all, you know, hold hands and celebrate. So I think having that mindset helped me not crash and burn like some people going into the classroom with Teach for America do. And while the work is really important, it's also really challenging And you're going into schools that have traditionally been underserved and understaffed. You're going to get students with a wide variety and array of skill sets, of interests. And I can't even imagine going into school now post-pandemic 
we've seen students, especially in underserved communities, have been less likely to go back into the classroom or be in the classroom at a consistent rate. And so there's even more challenging now post-pandemic. And so I feel for all of the teachers all across the country Mm -hmm. as we see education on a daily basis become even more devalued by local governments, national governments. But the kids that you will work with are the most incredible kids ever. So for me, my highlights are tied to all of my students. Getting to walk into the classroom every day and be a resource to them, be a stable person in their life, be an encouragement to them, that was the only thing some days that Mm -hmm. let me get out of bed and go to work because Working with, you know, administrators can be challenging. Working with school districts can be challenging. Sometimes parents can be challenging. But being able to actually talk to middle school students for me, which was my favorite age, still is my favorite Mm -hmm. age, getting to work with them and just be there for them every day, answer their questions, try to teach them something, try to show them that, you know, how to be a good person, how to love each other, how to listen how to work hard, that is just so important. And kids need all of the love and the role models and not being able to be with them now even breaks my heart. And so the highlight is, of course, them. The low light is being a teacher is never respected enough. Education is never funded enough especially in underserved communities. Mm -hmm. And so you really have every force working against you. But if it's something that you care about, that stuff doesn't matter. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like that experience really like pushed you and you had to probably grow a lot Mm -hmm. in that role. Yeah. It, It taught me more and made me grow up more than any two year time period in my entire life up to this point, including law school. Mm-hmm. And I would not be in law school or doing what I'm doing or who I am, I think, at this point without such a formative experience. Cause like we've talked about already, but like with challenge comes growth. And that was the most challenging thing. Um, but it was also the most growing thing. And going to law school while everyone has probably heard the horror stories about law school. There's not a day in law school that has been as challenging as a day in my middle school classroom. Oh, wow. I can do anything. (laughs) If I taught eighth grade, I can do anything. You could conquer the world. I can. I really can. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, was it during Teach America where you started to like develop this like interest in law school or tell me more about what that journey was like? Yeah. So I had always thought about it having been a constitutional studies minor in undergrad. It kind of lingered. And I do have just a general academic interest, um, for lack of a better term, in the law. And so I do find it interesting. So if you're not a person who finds reading about Supreme Court cases or any type of legal cases interesting, law school is probably not for you. So I did have this general 
inclination or interest in it. But it wasn't until being in the classroom where a lot of my students were going through a variety of things that I couldn't help them with because I just didn't have the information or the expertise. For example, even at the young age of 13, some of them were having interactions with the criminal justice system or people in their family were having interactions with the criminal justice system. People in their family were incarcerated and have um, you know, a mass incarceration crisis in this country that's affecting so many people, but of course poor people the most, which is a lot of a lot of people in these communities where Teach for America is and where they teach. And so I was seeing that those things and I couldn't answer the questions that my students were asking me. I couldn't give them any help on those things. And then we had students with food insecurity and housing insecurity and families that were facing eviction. And these were just all things that I cared so much about because I cared about my students that I wanted to be able to help with and I couldn't. And so because these things were happening outside the four walls of our classroom, I didn't have any way to be a resource. And I think the greatest part about being a teacher was being a resource to them, Mm -hmm. whether they wanted love or support or affirmation or help. And I loved being able to provide that for them and not being able to answer those questions or not being able to guide them in any certain way. I felt so helpless. And so my initial reaction was like, well, where can I learn about how to be a resource for these particular kids and these these particular families? And so the only choices that I really came up with were public policy work, try to change things from a systemic level, or law school where you can learn how to represent kids and families and potentially be helpful in an individualized capacity. And so, of course, I chose law school because I was thinking, you know, if I can learn about this stuff, if I can be knowledgeable, even if I can't, you know, represent them directly or help in an immediate impact way, I at least can connect some dots for them. I can connect them to people Mm -hmm. who maybe can help them or turn them in the right direction because my students just didn't know what to do. That's why they came to their 23-year-old teacher asking for help. I see a lot of like videos where people are like, oh, you're 23? You're old. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The jokes just never, ever stopped coming from them. They're probably ruthless, too. Oh, the honesty. It's something I do appreciate so much, and my ego took a hit many, many times. (laughs) But you love it because they tell you, how it is and it goes both ways so when they tell you thank you or when they say you know I care about you or I love you or you look sad what can I do for you you're the best you know you know those things are real they mm-hmm. come from a real place of honesty and so while you have to take the you know comments about your shoes or your style <laughs> or how lame you are or how old you are you get the really honest comments that you know they're being truthful. And those are the things that really stick with you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you were considering law school, was it like, did it grow over time? Or what was sort of the trigger that that made you started to say, I'm going to start studying for the LSAT, I'm going to take that? I guess did it grow over time? Or were you just walking down the hallway one day and you were like, I'm going to do that? Yeah, I think it grew over time 
starting with undergrad, this, you know, I feel like I kind of caught the bug and then I'd always been thinking about it and never let it go away. And I actually was doing a social studies unit with my eighth graders and we were talking about um, court cases and things like that. And I had mentioned something about I had thought about going to law school or maybe I was going to go to law school. And a couple of my students just like weren't stuck on that. And they asked me all these questions like, oh, are you going to go to law school after you teach? Are you going to stay teaching? Like, how, how does that work? And they kept asking me and asking me. And then one of my students just said, like, Miss Hadley, you should do it. You should do it. <laughs> you should do it. And I was like, no, like, I'm here with you. I don't have time. You guys take up all my time. And they were like, no, you should do it. And they would encourage me in our study hour, you know, kind of like downtime to study for the LSAT. And they obviously, you know, they didn't know what the test was called, but I had told them I have to take this test and see if I even get in anywhere. And they would encourage me to study. And some some of the students would even quiet down other students like she's she's trying to study. (laughs) Be quiet so she can study like she's trying to go to law school. And it's just so (laughs) funny that they caught on to it. And it wasn't until they really pushed it that I actually took the idea of really going to law school, really doing this thing seriously. And oh. so it was it was them. Wow. And so they, the, they didn't even know that they were the reason that I wanted to go in the first place. Wow. So those students really, like, they impacted you and really changed your life? Oh, the entire trajectory of my life in more ways than I can count. Yeah, that's phenomenal. So I'm curious, I know that, like, for medical schools, sometimes they like that when people leave and they gain some experiences I think a lot of med school students, they feel like I have to go to med school right after undergrad. And I don't know if that's always the most realistic path. Is that a similar way for law school? Like, I guess, what's that process like? I think it's different for everyone, but there's definitely a large group of people. Um, I don't have the numbers, but I would say a majority, at least, of people take some time off between undergrad and law school. And I would really, really encourage that for a variety of reasons. The first being when you graduate from undergrad, you don't know what you want to do. Even if you think you know what you want to do, you do not know what you want to (laughs) do. And so taking that time off really helps solidify the decision. Secondly, as a first-generation college student, as a first-generation law student, it's a financial undertaking that you do not want to get into if you aren't really sold on it because if you can get your dream job without having to go through three years of school and three years of student loans, you shouldn't go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And so I think it takes time to really think about if this is something you want to do. And then I think the last thing is that if you go right out of undergrad, you've don't know anything other than going to school. And so the most natural thing when you don't know what you want to do when you're getting out of your undergraduate institution is to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And it just may not be necessary for you to do the things that you actually want to do with your life. And so taking that time to explore what it's like actually having a job um, can be really beneficial. And that doesn't even go into all of the experience you gain from working a job doesn't have to be a teaching job it can be any 
job post undergrad, the experience you gain just from being alive longer mm-hmm. is invaluable. And I would not be doing as well or as focused and motivated in my studies and what I want to do had I just jumped right into law school, even though it was a thought that I had after undergrad and I ended up actually, you know, going back three years later and doing it. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. I think, um, yeah, it's really easy to like, feel like you need more school, but I think even for the MBA program, I had a psychology degree, so I didn't have much of a choice because I couldn't really do anything with that. (laughs) And so I figured uh, an MBA would open up a lot of opportunities and I knew I wanted to be in business, but I think there were a lot of my peers who had had maybe two to five years of experience and the way that they could contribute in the classroom and the way that they were absorbing information was just so different. Like they were experiencing that and had examples and were able to connect that back to these experiences to where I think that program probably was a little more rich for them. I was getting a lot of like business foundations and knowledge and like frameworks, but I didn't have as many tangible things to connect that to. Our grad school program did have a like they had a like residency during the middle of it. So you'd go gain that experience, apply it, and then come back for a last semester. So I really agree with your thought process around like gaining experiences however you can before jumping into something with more education. Well, and I think something that maybe isn't as obvious on its face, I know I didn't know this before I went into law school. I assume it's probably true with medical and business as well, but the amount of things or the different paths that you can take with a law degree are insane. I thought there were like three types of lawyers, Mm -hmm. you know, there's only so much you can do with a law degree. And that's just not true. There's so many different avenues that you can go down so many different job opportunities. And I think going into law school, having some type of experience, real world work experience, regardless of what it is, if you can weed out some things that you know you don't want to do that can be just as valuable so if you work two years in a job that you hate or in a sector that you hate that is just as helpful because when you go into the legal world those jobs probably have lawyers somewhere you know tied to whatever you were doing and if you know that that's something you don't want to do that's just one more thing you can eliminate from your list so that you Mm -hmm. can try to find what it is you do want to do. Right, right. That makes it like a process of elimination almost until you find exactly. what you love. Exactly. So um, as you were applying to law schools, you ended up at Georgetown. What called you to that school or what made you make that decision? I wish I had a really insightful answer, but the truth is that I did not know how competitive getting into law school can be and was and I only applied to two schools one of them being Georgetown I applied to another really good institution that could have and should have rejected me in Georgetown could have and should have probably do (laughs) Um, so I just looked at the things that they offered and Georgetown has a really large incoming class, bigger than most of the other law schools. So I knew that there would be just a diversity of thought and a lot of different people to meet. Georgetown also has an evening program, which I knew would put me around people who had full-time jobs, had families, and the type of people that I thought maybe would be drawn to an evening program were were people that I thought 
I would want to be around. Um, working in D.C. around Capitol Hill, of course, the law school campus is right by Capitol Hill. There's just so much to experience in D.C. that you can do all throughout the year versus people who go to school outside of D.C. can only come for internships and stuff during the summers. And they're, of course, more competitive at that time because you're competing with students in law schools all across the country. And so I think the D.C. experience and the opportunities that were in D.C. drew me to Georgetown also has a huge public interest leaning um, criteria. And there are a lot of different classes that you can take that are public interest focused, which I thought was going to be something that I would be interested in. And so it really just was luck that I got in Ignorance that I didn't apply to many other institutions and fate that I ended up choosing it and going there. That's phenomenal. So what's a day in the life for you? The answer has changed uh, significantly this semester. So this semester, I'm actually in the juvenile justice clinic where I work with the most incredible supervisors who are at the forefront of juvenile defense, criminal defense. And so we represent clients on a daily basis in their um, delinquency offenses. And so this kind of, of course, ties back to the work that I did teaching because my clients are, you know, in that age range, that 13 to 17-year-old age range. And they are wonderful kids who have made mistakes or they have, you know, been wrongfully accused of things. And so most of my day is spent talking to parents, talking to clients, talking to um, the opposing counsel, talking with my supervisor about cases or talking to people in my clinic about their clients' cases and brainstorming, you know, how we're going to interview witnesses or theory of the case and how we're going to move this case forward, which is very different than how I spent my first two years in law school. My first two years were all more theory-based classes and the more doctrinal classes. So you read 30 to 40 pages and you go to class and the professor discusses the cases and cold calls on people to give answers and discuss about the cases that you read about. And so it's the more traditional law school scene that you probably see in the movies Mm -hmm. um like legally blonde or whatever (laughs) whatever movie legal movies um that you have seen you've kind of seen probably what it's like to be a law student like that but the clinical practice is very different where you're actually working as if you well you are you're a student attorney that is just supervised by someone else and you're making these strategic decisions and working with your clients to figure out what their interests are and advocate on behalf of that interest. Wow. So it sounds like a really good mix of in classroom knowledge development and then you really quickly get to apply that. Exactly. The clinics are not required in order to graduate, but I strongly advise that if you go to law school and have the opportunity to do a clinic that you do it because it's taught me more than I think any of my other classes. And it's really good to 
take all the things that you've learned and all the foundation that you've built over the last two years and actually see what it looks like in practice and have the benefit of a very smart and accomplished supervising attorney telling you whether or not you're doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) Is that intimidating? Like even though you've gone through all this training or is it like pretty natural for you? Our supervisors are the best attorneys that I've ever seen and also some of the best people I've ever met. So they are not intimidating in that respect, Mm -hmm. but having clients who are really relying on you, especially when you have when you're working in a criminal defense clinic of some kind, you know, that just adds an extra layer of weight. And I, I take that very seriously, that role of being their counselor and their advocate. And if they are asking for my help, if I have the means and ability to help them that I do. And so I think that that is the most intimidating piece, the nature of the role rather than our supervising attorneys and, all, and of course, all of the other very accomplished and successful other students in the clinic. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm curious, like, from, like, when you're working with students, right, it sounds like you take on the weight of, like, their growth and their development. And it almost feels like when you're working with clients, you kind of take on their story, their journey, the challenges that they're going through. Like, does that... I know it sounds like it excites you a lot, but does that get like emotionally draining or? It does. It does get emotionally draining. I think that my teaching experience has been so helpful for this clinic because I am used to work that is emotionally draining. There's not many jobs that I can think of um, outside of, you know, education and medicine and the legal world that you really do carry that kind of emotional weight on a daily basis and within all of the work that you do. And so having the teaching experience of just being in emotional work all of the time, being at my emotional capacity basically at all time, I think was really helpful, but that hasn't made it any easier to Mm -hmm. do this work. And I think Sometimes I wonder if I care too much. Like, do I care about this too much where I I can't actually have my own real life outside of the work that I do because I just care so much? Sometimes I can't sleep at night because I'm thinking about my clients or, you know, what's ahead in our case. And so that's a real question that I feel like I'm still grappling Mm -hmm. with. Am I going to be able to do this work at all moving forward? Is it too much? Am I going to be able to do this work full time moving forward? Is it something I'm going to just need to do part time because the emotional drainage of it weighs really heavy on me? And I don't know the answer to that question yet. Yeah. Are there things that you're trying to do to help you grow emotionally or like cope with this or things that people that you're talking to that have helped there? I think most lawyers that you talk to would either say they're in therapy or say that it would be really good if they were in therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't disagree with that. Um, I think being able to talk through it with someone is really helpful because you can't just carry this weight all of the time. But 
also being able to celebrate the good things that happen when a case gets dismissed or your clients are getting services that are beneficial to them and that they're really enjoying or finding to be helpful, then that really helps. You know, those bursts of joy can kind of sustain you on to the next thing. I think the hardest thing is really just being able to separate your life. Where, Like where does my life outside of law school or outside of clinic work or being a student attorney end and just me being Liz like begin because these things can be so all consuming Mm -hmm. and on one hand if it's the thing you want to do if it's what you want to devote your life to then having work that is fully integrated into who you are and what you do I mean that's the greatest thing you can ask for but on the other hand you don't want to lose yourself and who you are outside of your work because we are valuable mm-hmm. outside of what we are capable of doing for work. You don't want to lose that. And so I think sometimes those lines get blurry and I don't know where that is mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. That's such an interesting paradox, right? Cause we're talking about like how to find work that you love. And I guess it's almost it can almost be like this double-edged sword sometime, right? Where the work that you love, it can really consume you too. And like, how do you balance that with you as a person and family and friends? Like, I think we all have to kind of figure out too, is once you do find the work that you love, how do you balance that with all the other parts of your life to maintain this, I don't know if balance is the right word, but like a healthy rhythm. It's about integration, right? Mm -hmm. Not consummation, that you don't want your work to be all consuming, that it's the only thing that you do and it's only who you are, even if it's something that is beneficial to the world or something that you really love, Mm -hmm. right? It can't be the only thing about you and it can't be the only thing that you have. But on the other hand, you also want it to be fully integrated where you're not just working nine to five until you're seeing the clock strike five and logging off as fast as you possibly can and only working so that you can be who you want to be in that five to nine time after work before you go back for the next day. And so it is a, it is a difficult balance and how do you integrate it where you can do it all at once. You can be a good partner and have a fulfilling partnership with someone. You can be a friend to people outside of your profession and you can be a mentor or a staple in your community and to the people that you care about and also a really strong legal advocate or whatever Mm -hmm. your choice of work or passion is you know you want to be all of these things at once and sometimes it is hard to draw those lines but I think the goal is to have it integrated where Work doesn't feel like work and life doesn't have to feel like life. It's just all who you are Mm -hmm. and you don't have to have those sharp divisions and compartments of your life. Because every time I've tried to set my life up like that, I end up losing myself somewhere. I'm Mm -hmm. not the same person at work as I am after work or I'm not the same person in my relationship as I am to my friends. And I think... 
if you want to truly live to your fullest potential and have your happiest life, then you need to be able to integrate all of those things that you show up the same no matter who you're showing up to and what you're showing up to. I love that, Liz. So well put. I love the um, integrated but not all consuming. I think that's beautifully said. Okay, so you're almost done with law school. You are going to, uh, hang on, I have it written down here, Davis, Polk, and Wardwell. Mm -hmm. So uh, Drew was telling us that they helped facilitate the Twitter deal, right? Yeah, so they did some financing for it. I don't work there now, so I don't necessarily know Mm -hmm. all of the details, but they do a lot of corporate transactions, so... I will be starting my career working in a big law firm, which I think is a good way to get training for any type of legal work you want to do and going into law f- these big law firms that have resources and all the money in the world to train you can be a really good way to start your career. And it's, of course, not the only way, um, but these Student loans are serious, so you got you got to find a way to continue doing the things that you love and that you want to do with your life and chasing your passions. But there's also practical things that get in the way. You got to find a way to integrate those things in mm-hmm. too. So, hoping to take this juvenile defense practice with me, no matter where I am, that it's something that I can do whether it's pro bono work that I do or whether it's something that I end up jumping into full-time at some point in my career. It's something that I don't plan on letting go of. Mm-hmm. But when you go work at a law firm, you do you just do the work that they hand you. Right. So <laughs> I have no idea what it's going to be like. I'm a little nervous, but I know it's going to be a really good training experience if not you know anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think even in business, like I often think about, do you go to a big company first or do you go to a small one? And my trajectory has been, I started at HCA, which is like the largest for-profit healthcare system. Then I went to GE Healthcare, another really big organization before going to a smaller organization. I think there's something to be said about starting with these massive organizations with these systems and processes and they have all this experience and knowledge and they've built on it and they've captured it and they've got best practices and playbooks and like the relationships that you develop are so powerful. You may not get to do exactly what you want to do and you're probably going to be a little more specialized, but I guess even going to a small one, right? like a small company, there's pros to that too, where you get to do a lot of different things, but you may not get some of the systems and processes that these big organizations have built. I think I'm in the boat of maybe starting bigger first and going smaller, but I can see an argument for starting smaller and I don't know if that being a a path as well. Yeah, I don't think there's one right way to do it. I do think a lot of law students, especially at some of the more um, elite institutions, do tend to go to law firms. It feels very similar to going to grad school right out of undergrad because it's safe and, you know, you're going to get this incredible training like you were talking about. But I don't think there's necessarily one way to do it of course that's the path that I'm taking and I'm really looking forward to the training and the resources that they'll have I mean if I get to do a big pro bono practice there I have 
all the power and resources behind me and my client that, you know, I could ever ask for. So I think in that sense, it makes sense to try to do pro bono work with balancing, you know, the regular corporate work because you get the benefits of having this big firm back you. I've stopped trying to make a plan Mm. for myself. And so I've learned that trusting my gut has got me to this point. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a small town in rural Oklahoma. I moved to Chicago and taught eighth graders. I never thought I'd be doing that. I got into Georgetown Law, never thought that was possible. Done things, seen things, met people that I couldn't have even dreamed up in Mm -hmm. my life. And that's so much due to luck and chance. But I do think that there's something in my gut that has helped make those decisions along the way. And so if I get too in my head about what's the right firm, this firm versus that firm, or this path versus that path, public versus private, like you could go on and on and it doesn't necessarily mean much. And I've just kind of stopped trying to make the exact stepping stone plans and just trust my gut that I can make do with whatever this experience ends up being. It may be my dream job Mm -hmm. and that would be great. And I may never need another job again. It may be a stepping stone for the next thing that may end up being the next stepping stone to the next thing. And then that may be the thing I want to do with my entire life. And so I think just stopping the planning can be challenging But I think just stopping and trusting that this is either going to be the thing or it's going to be one thing that gets me to the thing. Mm -hmm. And both of those things are beneficial and useful. And I don't need to lie awake at night in a state of anxiety debating these minor differences. Mm -hmm. I love that approach. It reminds me of, um, there's this book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and Daniel Kahneman, he talks about two different parts of your brain, systems one and system two. System one's that like very logical, trying to weigh out everything, and system two is basically everything that you've experienced, and it's kind of like this indirect process that you're thinking through that really fuels your gut. It's like a Google search of like all your experiences, and I love that for some decisions like finding what you love, right? like you can't maybe plan that out, but... Regardless, as you continue to gain these experiences, each piece can be a stepping stone to that to that next part of your journey. And it'll give you another data point on what you do and don't love. And it's all about the journey anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like we may not ever find the thing that we want to do, but searching for the thing that we want to do and living our lives while doing it may end up actually being the thing that we were supposed to do with our time here. And so... You never know, and you can't you can't plan your way out of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how does it feel to go from Berry Hill to Chicago to D.C. and moving to New York soon? Yeah. I feel like I just now 
having been out of Oklahoma for five years at this point, two major U.S. cities, finally starting to feel like a city girl. Mm-hmm. I Being back in Texas has been so fun for me. I've been missing my cowboy boots and missing the country music, but I feel like the city is just so fun, mm-hmm. and I've been having a really good time with it, but I would be lying if I said I didn't miss the crickets and the water burger yeah oh my god (laughs) the food the food down here is just unmatched so i'm loving living in the city i'm nervous about moving to new york but it's all part of the journey and i'm gonna love it and it's gonna be everything i ever wanted or it's not and i'll move yeah and it's gonna be part of the story that i tell so again i'm not planning anything i'm just hoping for the best and I know whatever it ends up being is going to be like you said another data point in what I can use to find my thing yeah I love that Liz you've shared a lot of great advice already is there any other advice that you'd like to share with young adults like college or like newly grads anything you think that would be helpful the one thing that I have been really thinking of and I think has been so evident to me having come to Georgetown is that your life experience, whatever it has been, is so valuable wherever you are. I go to school with people who have attended some of the most elite institutions in the country and in the world, who come from some of the most prestigious families in the world. Mm -hmm. And I also go to school with people just like me who grew up with parents who are divorced or little to no money or, you know, in the middle of nowhere or on a farm. Like my experience I thought was so invaluable when I got to Georgetown. Like I don't have the name or the wealth or any of those things, but like we've already talked about that perspective actually is so valuable because there's so few voices like that in these institutions or in these classrooms. And so I've learned to be proud of the experience that I've had and not to devalue myself just because it doesn't look the way some of the other people that I know, how their lives have been up until this point. And so I think the best advice I can give is just your experience is valuable in whatever room you're in. And maybe you have a very similar experience to everyone around you, or maybe you have a very different experience, but it is only yours. And that's something that is useful and also can never be taken. And so giving yourself the understanding and grace of allowing it to be useful wherever you are will actually benefit everyone around you. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Liz, for being the first guest on the podcast. You should be so proud of all the things that you've done, and I'm so proud, and it's been so fun. I think 
we've known each other for almost what like nine ten years now coming up on a decade coming up on a decade and uh, i'm so excited to just see the impact that you'll continue to have on the people around you the community around you and the systems and processes and institutions that you're going to challenge and do amazing things with and so so honored to have had you on the podcast thanks for having me and if you ever have anyone reach out to you that seems like they may need my advice (laughs) if it's worth anything i'm always happy to help all right awesome thanks so much liz thanks john thank you again liz for being the first guest on the podcast this podcast is brought to you by me because i don't have any sponsors yet all jokes aside thank you for listening and being the early supporters of my new passion project I'd really appreciate it if you shared this podcast with others you think might benefit from or enjoy this episode. I hope you have a lovely Thanksgiving with family and loved ones.